The Danakil Desert is one of the lowest and hottest places on Earth, a cauldron of burning salt, volcanic rock, and sulfuric acid. The Danov volcanic crater is hostile and toxic, and not exactly the best or safest place for a television production team to set up. Filming day after day in punishing temperatures over 120 degrees, the team are dealing with crashing drones, failing camera equipment, and magnetic interference. But turns out this is just a regular day at the office when shooting a megadoc that features Will Smith and eight astronauts for National Geographic. I knew I couldn't go back. Is your you just life. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Stuck even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That I. was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. If you don't have moments when you're totally terrified, I think you're kind of probably a mad person. You have to have that moment. Are we really? And then people go, yeah, let's let's do it. And you've all got to hold hands and say, yes, this is crazy, but we're going to give it a try anyway. Jane Root is a leading creative executive producer who has transformed major networks on both sides of the Atlantic. Previously president of Discovery Networks and controller of BBC Two in the UK, Jane set up the production company Newtopia about a decade ago. She's won many awards with her formats, achieved record-breaking ratings, and pioneered a new genre of television, the Megadoc. The majority of her work is about our amazing planet and the people who live on it. And last year, her series One Strange Rock, hosted by Will Smith on National Geographic Channel, won critical acclaim. And it's not hard to see why. It's incredible and groundbreaking on every level. You get to see the Earth in a whole new, mind-blowing way. I met up with Jane Root recently as she was gearing up for season two of this brilliant series. She promises she's going to be raising the bar even higher. First of all, uh, Jane, thanks for taking some time out to come and talk to me. Congratulations on One Strange Rock. We'll talk about whether there's going to be a follow-up because I know you've said that there's a lot more to follow up on. But what an absolutely extraordinary mega doc series. Really mind-blowing. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It, it, yes, it became this huge thing. It started from something little and became a big thing. Yeah. And you've been involved in a lot of big things over the years. I remember years ago I was hosting an event and you'd won an award when you were at Discovery and I think it was Planet Earth at that time, which that in itself was big. I thought that was a big perspective of the Earth until I saw One Strange Rock and I realized, wow, it can be even bigger. It's the same place, but you did something even more special with this. A long time ago, we had this idea when we started Newtopia that telling, there's really big stories out there to tell. Mm. And if you aim for something that hasn't been done before and is huge, yeah. that actually there's a lot of people who, want, who are interested in that. You know, that. Lots of people make great small things, yes. but the big moment, that's a big thing. Does that scare you at all when you when you think about something that is as big as this project is? Does it scare you or do you go into it thinking I've got this I mean is, is the confidence high all the way through it or or is there fear <laughs> if you don't have moments when you're totally terrified I think you're kind of probably a mad person right. really you know you have to have I think it's that thing you actually have to say can we really possibly do this and everyone on the team kind of laughs and you have to have that moment 
are we really? And then people go, yeah, let's let's do it. And you've all got to hold hands and say, yes, this is crazy, but we're going to give it a try anyway. And one of the things I know about you is you've always said you've got to have a strong team around you. So just give us the origin of where this all came from. Because first, National Geographic came to you, didn't they? And they said, Jane, we want to do something big. We want to do something big and bold. Is that how that yeah, happened? Yeah, that's right. There was a very casual conversation. And we just saw sort of like, Hmm, that's interesting. And then I went back the next day to London where our, our big main office is. And people started playing around with what is there out there about the earth and what are the ideas out there. And when we, when we come across a territory, we usually do a couple of things. We have a look at what innovations are happening technically. Uh, what new technology is there out there? And in this case, there's a ton of exciting new stuff that you could look at. So we assembled some footage of what what there was, what the, what we might play with. And we also talked to experts about, is there new thinking out there? Are people thinking about the Earth's relationship to the universe in a different way? One thing we did decide pretty early on was that this wasn't really going to be about space. Mm. It was going to be about the Earth, that somehow people had spent a lot of time looking outwards, but it was interesting to look inwards. That was an idea that solidified in the first couple of days. How did you get past what you had already done with planet Earth? Because that was such a marvel in itself. I mean, people just they would be in awe. It was like earth porn, if you like. I mean, the, the footage was so good on that. that uh, but that was done by the Natural History Unit when yes. I was working for the BBC and then for Discovery. And that's like a, you know, Natural History Unit has been going forever. Mm -hmm. And people do things that, they, you know, they talk in 10-year projects and yes. five-year projects. And there's always... It's a group of people always trying to do the next thing, but very focused on animals. Yeah. And we took the decision early on with Planet Earth that we weren't going to try and compete with what the Natural History Unit does about animals. We were going to do something different. On another level. On another level. Yeah, and, and you really did. I was just reading in, in, in the 10-part series, took over a year to do 900,000 miles, which is almost like going to the moon and back twice, yeah. <laughs> 139 shoots, six continents, 45 countries, 1,600 feet below the ground in one shoot, and then 286 miles above the earth, which, which then begs the question, the choice about the astronauts. You're saying that you weren't wanting to look out as much as look in, but then you did go out to look in, and you chose astronauts, some wonderful astronauts, eight astronauts. Well, that was a really good story in that we started off thinking that maybe we would have a host mm -hmm. to the show and there was a lot of playing around with that, but we never quite could find, you know, the right person. And Did we need a host? Could we do it without a host at all? And back and forward, back and forward. We were working with a wonderful woman, a good friend of mine called Vanessa Berlowitz, who was one of the people who made Planet Earth. Right. And she, we were playing around with this question, how do we tell the story? How do we tell the story? And she rang me up one morning. It was incredibly early. She was in New York and she, she told me she was very jet lagged. And it was like six o'clock in the morning. And she's like, are you up? She said, I'm wearing my pajamas and I've had an idea. And she said, where are all the best ideas come said, from? Can I, she said, I've been waiting for you for six o'clock so it, I could wake you up. And she said, she said, astronauts, that's what we need to tell this story is astronauts. And it was one of those amazing light bulb moments. You know, people think that television or any kind of creative project is made up of light bulb moments. In fact, they're really rare. 
you know, most of it is kind of a slog. Mm. Like you work through alternatives and you, but that was a genuine light bulb moment. And Vanessa was like, they see the earth from the outside. So they're the ones who understand how it all fits together, which is an idea we'd been talking about. And they have a unique perspective. And we were like, yeah. I went, we were working with Darren Aronofsky by that point. And we went in to see him that morning. We were, we were there working with him. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And Darren Aronofsky, just for those who don't know, uh, going right back to, I think about 99, he directed the movie Pi, right? And he, he and, and such, and, and I think he won the Cannes Film Festival, oh, sorry, uh, Sundance Film Festival for that. I think so. Yeah, and, and he's just a, has a, he's a real visionary in terms of how he tells stories. So wonderful. How did you get him on he was He was an executive producer. He came on after the show had already been greenlit. Ah, and okay. people at, at Fox, Peter Rice and Courtney Monroe yeah. at Nat Geo were like, maybe you want to find a great kind of visionary person to just be a sort of mentor and kick things around with. And mm-hmm. and they knew him well. I, you know, I think Black Swan, yes. which is his big Oscar-nominated feature, had been made through them. And they were like, you should, talk to, you should talk to Darren. And so I went to see him. It was... And it was a good connection, And we obviously. just instantly kind of did it. His business partner is a guy called Ari Handel, who mm-hmm. had been his roommate at Harvard. And the two of them... Uh, we're in love with science and yeah. in love with that stuff. So it, yeah, it just happened. It was great. And going back to the the astronauts, so I think it's something like only five hundred and something people have been into space. Um, so then the question becomes, what astronauts, right? Because you need people who are really good storytellers, and every single one of them are captivating. I've had the the, the honor of being able to sit uh, opposite three of them that you had on the series but they all just know how to tell a story and really draw you in. So did you audition them? How did that work? We did a lot of research. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of astronauts are pure scientists. Yes. You know? And scientists can be hard. I mean, you know they, from, from natural history and we're just in our work in television, we're always looking for those captivating characters. And sometimes the people with the best ideas are not the best at communicating it. And, and people... and. Being an astronaut, a lot of it is about kind of military style precision. Yes. It's about, it's not, it's about controlling your emotions. It's not about like, you know, not not everyone can access that place in themselves to talk happily about that stuff. And so we were looking for people who not only had been in space, but who could kind of talk about what it meant to them and how they felt and make connections and yeah we we came across a a small group who we just fell in love with wonderful wonderful people rich storytelling uh and and i think that's the the part that i really i was going to say gravitated towards but it was just the idea that they had this ability to really communicate what it's like to be 286 miles above the earth and look down at that at our beautiful home, this this planet Earth, and the way that they could, it was like a spiritual thing. And and there isn't an, I've been lucky enough to meet a few astronauts in my life, and they all say the same thing about looking back on the Earth. It really does affect them spiritually. Somebody talked about being able to put your thumb over the Earth and yeah. looking How at crazy the window. Is that? And you put your thumb up, and that's us. Yeah. And they call it the overlook effect. You know, that once you've seen the earth in that context you can't quite ever see anything else in the same way and the amazing thing about us is it's only in the last 70 years that people have done that you know generations generation 
in the 70s and 80s now. They were the first people to ever have, in the history of humanity, that experience. Nobody yeah. had ever looked back on Earth in that way. And the, the people that we found for One Strange Rock, they'd all been really deeply touched by it in very different ways. Some of them are religious in a organized yeah. religion way. Some of yeah. them are religious in a spiritual way. Some of them are scientists who believe in the goodness of the universe. They, they all have different perspectives, but it's connected the dots for them. Yeah, in a big way. And I think when there were so many things that they said that really made you think, you know, I yeah. remember Jerry Lineger said, when you're up there, I think it was Jerry or, or Mae Jemison said, you're up there, you can't see borders, you can't see countries, you just see one strange rock floating out in space. And then you realize, well, we're all connected, you know, we're not countries from here, we're just it's just the earth. You're a human from that place. Yes. You know, that, that's, that blob down there. And the idea that somehow it matters whether you're a, a Mexican or an American is kind of ridiculous when you're in space. Right. You don't see walls. Yeah. I don't, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're, when you're no walls. <laughs> no walls. And most of the people that we were, we were talking to had been part of the International Space Station. Yes. So they'd been part of international crews, some of them for a really long time, months and months and Jerry months. Jerry has the record. Jerry Linger, right? Doesn't he? That's for the right. longest American in space? Yeah. And that story he told about the, oh, I mean, these, these men and women, they, they're, they're like the, you know, the explorers of old, you know, the Shackletons mm -hmm. of, of bygone era, right? I and mean, then they're, they're going out and doing things. And uh, I, I just, I get co so caught up in it. Do you have any, having done this series now and met these people, do you have a desire to go up there like I do and look back? I don't know about going up there, I, maybe. <laughs> but I think I, I definitely think that that idea of that unique perspective mm. is something that you can see why it's, caught the imagination of the whole world and it really has one strange rock it's sort of got an edge to it it's sort of got a bit of an attitude it has it seems fitting that will smith was the host because it the, the one strange rock i mean it's it's got a sense of humor to it i'm wondering where that came from well, strange came from me <laughs> okay. uh, because i when i run a network for the bbc one of our hit comedy shows was uh third rock from the sun yes and so i really liked the rock Yes. Rock, talking about it like a rock rather than a planet because yes. planet's quite serious whereas that that joke about the third rock from the sun yes and then it also being like the idea that it's strange that it's still like the idea of things being odd and peculiar and kind of not quite connecting up that you could that you could enjoy stuff just because you say hey that's weird and i think having will smith really did give the series and attitude will was just wonderful he was amazingly just himself yes. i mean and again, and that's not easy to do for a lot of big name actors like that to be themselves it's it's really a unique unique gift it and is. the thing about will i always think is that if you follow his career from fresh prince all the yes. way through everything he does is always kind of about joy yes at one level like what made fresh prince so lovely to watch was that here he was just delighting in everything in rap but also in the whole kind of uh, Beverly Hills kind of thing that he's in that yeah. he he just thinks it's all great and funny and weird and as a person he's just like that he's he's you know sometimes you meet people with enormous reputations and when you actually look behind the curtain yeah. they're kind of different yeah he's the same same he's, guy 
the same. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to meet him and I would have said the same exact same thing. He just feels like the guy that you see in films, he, which is always a wonderful surprise because we've all had those disappointments, right? Where you meet someone you really like on screen and then they're just not the same person. No, they're <laughs> acting. Yes, they're definitely <laughs> They're really actors. acting. They're <laughs> acting like, and yeah, for him. And he's the way he is with his kids and all of that. The fact that he has this wild family that does this amazing stuff and his grasp the potential of social media in an yeah. amazing way and that's exciting every time you speak i was mentioning every time i've spoken to an astronaut they all say the same thing about the earth and i loved what chris hadfield said he said i really wish that everybody could have a chance to see the world as i have jerry Lineger said the same thing if i could just give people five minutes to go up and look at the world he said there'd be no wars you know um and he said uh to see the earth rejuvenated daily each time you come around. And if you're there long enough, you can see the whole world turned up and, you know, be upended with the change of seasons um, and yeah. taking a big breath. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is it is this fragile place that we we live in. And I think you when you when you get so micro the way you did, it really did show that these systems that are in place, just how fragile they are. Well, one of the things about One Strange Rock is that we, we never talk about climate change. No. And, and somebody, we won some award at a festival last year for being the best environmental program by stealth, mm -hmm. right? Because we never advertised it as this is about climate change or this is about environmentalism, but it's very hard to watch it and not to think those things. And that was a very deliberate strategy on everyone's behalf so that allows you to join the dots about that stuff. Absolutely. There's that one part where Will is talking about the Amazon breathing, you know, the lungs of the earth, I yeah. think he said at one point. And when you hear him talk about it that way, you don't need to stress how important it is for us to look after the environment. He's just saying, look, on this strange rock, this is what happens. And then you realize, wow, I guess that means we really need to protect yeah. this beautiful place. Yeah, David Attenborough, who... I worked with at the BBC and at Discovery on planet Earth. He has, has a saying, which is, before you can save the planet, you have to fall in love with it. Mm. And I think that that's always been his mantra. First, you've got to fall in love with it, and then you can do something about it. And I think that's, that was something which I was very mindful of when we were making One Strange Rock. Do you think we're going to be okay, by the way, Jane? Hope so. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Okay. Hope so. I'm hoping that programs like yours will you know, give us... Uh, the best possible chance of saving what we have. Yeah. Man. So just talking about going into a series. So you start with these initial talks with Tim Pastore. Uh, now, you, you and, and at some point you had a discussion about it being 10 pads, but you've pretty much got an empty slate. You've got to pull the team together. Um, how do you go about then going, well, what are we going to shoot? Where are we going to go? How, what, where does this start? Well, it's like building a house. You know, yes. you start off with a little drawing, you know, yeah. and then you, iterate and iterate and have ideas and add pieces on and move pieces around and lots of big we have an office with lots of big whiteboards and people write things up and you find you find breakthroughs you know you mm. say this story is an example of something we should do or this footage you know if you, if you spend your life making those kind of programs and someone says we're going to make the biggest show about this subject that you've devoted years and years to, will you come and be part of it? It's like a lot of people want to join in. Yeah, and so. you, you've been credited with sort of creating these mega docs, right? I mean, which has become the 
the, the new in thing. Like everybody wants to be doing these, but the amount of trust, like you said, there's big money, it's big risk. Uh, do you ever lose sleep at night when you're thinking about this? I mean, maybe once you've got a couple under your belt, but if, uh, I'm just wondering if you ever wake up in a panic and think, oh, what have I oh, done? Oh, God, all the time. Yeah. But you have to, I think it's that thing of being on the edge of being very scared. Yes. <laughs> we had a, a little mantra on our team, which is if you don't fuck up now and again, you're not trying hard enough. Yes. And that was our sort of thing, which was like, we're going to try. Encouraging you to take some risks. We're going to do some brave things. And yeah. we did lots of really great things, some of which were wonderful and some of which were like, didn't work. <laughs> and people barely remember the ones that didn't work. But well, the ones when, that did, people remember. When the buck stops with you and, and it did, particularly there, I mean, you were behind some incredible series over there, right? Uh, the, the, uh, the, well, you were there at the BBC with the office? Yeah, we, I, I greenlit the first series of the British office, yeah. Top Gear? <laughs> yep. The Weakest Link? Yep. Um, and, and people have said that, you know, of all the BBC controllers, you were very successful. And I'm, we obviously were successful. I'm just wondering, what is it that you have, do you think, that where you're able to identify what is going to work? Because that is the, the, that magic source. That is what all producers, directors, everybody is looking for. But to hit it again and again and again, like you have, there's something that you must, like, do you get a gut instinct when you hear an idea or what is it? I don't know. I mean, I suppose I do, I do kind of, I come from a background that's really not like a television world at all. You were a, 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 a journalist, a journalist but right? my parents, um, my parents had a shop called Roots Rejects, which would have been like a dollar store. Okay. In a place called Canvey Island, which is outside London, which is a kind of joke. If you, if you, it's like um, Coney Island in uh, New York. It's like fun fairs, but also an oil refinery. And it's a kind of strange place, like Jersey City, or yeah. it's like very working class, kind of, but also, you know, if you if you say to people in Britain you come from Canvey Island, they laugh. You know, they're like, That's really? That's the first reaction. That's the first reaction. That doesn't seem fair. It's like, really? You come from Canvey? People talk about Essex girls. Okay. And that's like the Jersey Shore, and Canvey Island is like an extreme version of just this weird. Slightly kind of offbeat, slightly criminal kind of. Now we see why you like shows like The Office. You know, and, you know it's like drugs. so. I, I come from that world where nothing about. Though I came from a family that were interested in everything, we yes. were always interested in all this different stuff. Did you have the uh, subscription to the Encyclopedia Britannica, or like where, where was where was your curiosity? Oh, we, uh, we had things. A magazine called Finding Out, and my dad and mum were both really into like every every summer we would choose a different subject that the yes. family was going to go and investigate, and we would go and look at stuff and find stuff out. And my my parents were always like interested in a a ton of different stuff, hmm. and they were quite active politically, but we weren't at all like a kind of you know I was the first person in my family to go to college, you know we weren't like. So humble beginnings. You know, just so, so I just, I suppose I just kind of, inter I'm interested in a lot of stuff. And, and, and reading just some of the background and some of your quotes, you talk a lot about the nitty gritty of production, which I, is always a, a sure sign that people really like the, the intricacies of television making. And there was a quote that you said, sometimes you just need a snail. And I was wondering if you could tell the story where that where that came from because it had to do with this micro moment. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. right with the snail. And I, I, I you said, um, you know, I'll let you explain well, it, but I love this story. 
On one strange rock, one of the things that we wanted to look at was oxygen being formed and how oxygen is created in the world and how it's created in the oceans and how how we all have oxygen as a result. How are we living and breathing? How how are we we living and breathing? And but to film oxygen bubbles actually being created is a really, really difficult thing. And it takes and you have this algae on rocks and you want to figure out the micro photography and no one could do it. We had this big tank in our office and everyone was trying. And then amazing um, filmmaker Graham Booth, who's going to play a big role on uh, the second series of One Strange Rock. Oh, I was going to ask you that later. So it is coming back. That's official. It's come back. All right. Wonderful. Uh, And he said, I know what we need, snails. And everyone was like, what? What? And he said, yeah, we've got to get the bubbles to come more slowly so he went and got a bunch of snails i don't know where he got them from he did get a lot of snails in london gardens so maybe he bought some with him i don't know but anyway he put snails on these rocks and the sticky kind of slime that snails leaded it just made the bubbles leave the rocks a tiny bit slower right Uh, and that meant that they managed to film them because otherwise they would just so the the bubbles get formed but then they disappear very very quickly quickly. and that was the that was challenging the challenging part was capturing that moment. Yeah, so you wanted to actually see the bubble because the moment the bubbles were formed, they went to the surface and they were gone. And we, we just needed something to just delay the process a tiny bit. And it was snails. And we all just thought it was so funny that here we had, you know, a lot of very expensive equipment and like we got the result we needed from a bunch of garden snails. Just Sometimes like, know-how is better yeah. than the, right? You've got to have, and that must be a wonderful thing too where you have the ability to go, so, who's the best person in the world at using a phantom? Let's get that person in to shoot, yeah. right? And then they still needed the snails. <laughs> yeah, and then it comes down to those, those tiny little yeah. things. And I think that's one of the, again, from an a entertainment point of view, the ability to be able to go right into the bubble of a snail and then to pull back out into space again. And you, you were literally shooting up in space. I mean, how many television shows shoot up in space like in a series that's so bold well that was a really interesting process because what we wanted to try and do was not just have the same kind of footage that people often have from space yeah but actually tell tell a story and so darren aronofsky the filmmaker worked with an astronaut called paolo italian astronaut and he kind of gave him like a seminar in how how to do a sequence, you know, tight yeah. shot, wide shot. I thought that you know. was so cool. And, <laughs> and, and so Paolo filmed all this stuff in space and he totally got into it, which was wonderful. So when Peggy Whitson, who was one of our wonderful astronauts, when yeah. she was leaving to come home after being the woman who had been in space for the longest ever. She uh, was on the cover of National Geographic right. magazine yeah. too, wasn't she? Yeah. I, I had an opportunity to, to talk with her. Oh my goodness. She's just amazing. Powerhouse. Amazing. And but he was filming her leaving uh, the space station, and he was he was just completely into getting the right sequence. It was wonderful. So he was like, "I want to become a filmmaker." You know, what are you going to do after you stop being an astronaut? He was like, "I'm going to be a filmmaker." So that was pretty great. Can you give us any hints for like what's going to happen the next season? Are you going to also go back up into space again, or have you got a different approach? We're just that? working it out at the moment. I think there's lots and lots of places on Earth mm-hmm. that we haven't dealt with, and I think while the space thing will always be there, I think this is more going to be focused on the interconnections here, 
And I think that we're going to do perhaps go more deeply into the micro photography of which there was some in the first series, but I think seeing some astounding things here on Earth, uh, we're going to go further with that. I really love that. You've spoken uh, a number of times in your interviews about connections. My wife, a producing partner, is very much about like putting, as you said, uh, putting up paper and writing things down. And it's amazing once it's visually represented how you can find the, those connections yeah. and how much that helps you with the storytelling. I can't, yeah. and it's why I've had a moleskin for 25 years and write everything down because there's something wonderful about for ideas and brainstorming, making, and everybody can see. Absolutely. Is that sort of a process that you've... Oh, yeah. Uh, and we, we always have a new tip here. I'm like, where's the whiteboards? Anytime you get a new office, you know, right. like, where's the whiteboards? We're, we're in a, an old-fashioned London building on lots of different floors, and we're often getting new offices and moving around. But every room has a big whiteboard because yeah. I, I, I kind of often can't... I have to sort of write things down yeah. in order to kind of get my process. brain going, you know? It's yeah. like... And it allows you to stand up and walk around in a meeting. And that yeah, kind of it thing. does. And point and, yeah. you know, yeah. and also you just want things to be visually. Yeah. And that's how I remember things. Is that also how you yeah. sort of think of completely. the puzzle pieces and how they go together? Yeah, completely. completely. You've come through an era of television where you've seen like dramatic changes between the role of men and women in television. I mean, uh, it, it's changed so dramatically. You mentioned your 13 year old daughter. I have a 23 year old daughter who's just getting into the business, just started as a story uh, producer. Um, it's an it's a very exciting time for for women, particularly for the young ones coming up. They're coming into a different world, a different realm of possibilities, right? Completely. I think it's like it just finally with the moment we're in, yeah. it feels like some of the crap of the past. Everyone's like, yeah. really? That stuff used to go on, or that stuff still goes on a bit, but we're getting rid of it. I just think it's like, yeah, it's a new beginning. It's well, really the sensibilities good. too, I think, are coming through in the in the storytelling. So for a long time, it was such a it was a very male perspective, and we were like ignoring this other part of the audience in a lot of ways as program mm-hmm. makers, um, you know. And I've been involved with projects where you really want that balance because. You know, a male perspective can be quite different from a female perspective. Completely, and, and lots of different perspectives. And men, yes. women, different races, different... Different sexual orientation, sexual, cultural uh, backgrounds. It, it's like the world's becoming more connected. And it's really good to have, not just see things all in the same way. Yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, if, if you, going into this other series, whether there's a slight... Well, again, I mean, you want to be nervous, but you're going in, you're doing something that was so successful and you're going in to do it again. And a lot of people say, well, you can't beat the original, you know, that expression. Do do you do you get nervous about the idea of having to meet that standard again? Or do you think, you know, I think it's funny, but I think that sometimes with these projects, maybe you feel like this is the same with yours, that they never quite feel like they're finished. Yeah. You know, like you're always like, oh, if only we'd have got there. Yeah. You know, or we didn't manage to do that. Or, you know, they feel like, and because we knew that we were going to try and do a second series almost before the first one was completely finished. At some point, there was a quote you had where you said, look, I don't even mind if people turn off the sound because it's just meant to be this beautiful visual. You know, they, if they want to watch it like that, then fine. And it does hold up like that. It's like something you could just have on. I think it's that thing that you can have access at lots of different points, right? Mm. So you can watch it, you know, as, you could watch it and write, write notes to yourself to look stuff up in yeah. Scientific American afterwards. Or you can watch it with the sound turned down and some music turned up and it just be glorious and I don't really mind I don't have a I don't 
I think that thing of multiple access points is is great. You don't only have to watch something in one way. And people, yeah. I think filmmakers used to get very, like it has to be they get hung up. done in one way. Yeah. I, I was reading a thing in a magazine the other week and someone was, a cinematographer was talking about it. Someone asked him like, you must get very offended at the idea of people watching your amazing film on their iPhones. And he was like, no, actually, I think it's really cool. It's great that you can see it at a huge cinema on IMAX. But if someone's going to work and watching it, on their phone on the subway that's cool too and i thought yeah that's a kind of modern way of thinking about what you create and you've said too that you love the idea that people can just make something that goes up on youtube that is just super inexpensive a real contrast to what you've been doing with your big mega docs but you love that too right and that's changed so much you don't have to Creative, interesting things are about finding the essence of what's right for them. Mm. It's not, some things need a lot of money to achieve and some things need almost nothing. The beginning of The Office was a little five minute film that somebody made on a trainee scheme. It wasn't, you is know, that right? Stephen Marchant, who is yeah. Ricky Gervais's producing partner. Stephen was what, the BBC has a scheme called the TAPS, T Trainee Assistant Producer Scheme. And people who have this comparatively lowly jobs get to compete for a place on this scheme which is once a year and you get a, a week to make a five minute film and most and i think about 50 people a year get to go on this scheme and he got his friend ricky gervais who he he did the, some job late night job on a radio show like they had the two o'clock to three o'clock shift on a local radio station in London. And they hated the guy that they worked for. And they had this comedy sketch <laughs> they used to do. And somehow they, and he made that as his little film and it got shown to people. And that's, that's how Is we Is that got what to, you saw when? Yeah. 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 And we were like, it just made me really laugh because I was working for the BBC, which was all about sort of the moment when all of that management speak was really coming yes. <laughs> home to roost. So it just made me and the rest of the team really laugh. And we were like, oh, let's, let's do a pilot. And sometimes those things don't transfer when they're tried in a different country, but they really made it work over here as well. I mean, I love Ricky Gervais. I think he's like the best, but still it came over here. It became a big hit too. I think management bullshit somehow infected it's, the whole world. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> Everybody can relate to this. And the idea of the obnoxious boss, yeah. kind of, but not obnoxious in mean, just, okay. My husband at that point was a lawyer working in London. And the first series of The Office in Britain wasn't a success at all. Not many people watched it. But his assistant sent him a little JPEG. This was before YouTube of Ricky Gervais. And she sent it around the office rather appallingly and said, does this remind anybody of anybody? Right. And it was about their boss. And my husband came home and said, look what, look what I got. He said, like, I think maybe other people in offices might be doing that. And we, I took it into the office the next morning. We're like, hmm, maybe there's a lot of bosses like that around. Yeah, this is almost like therapy for, <laughs> for, for people, right? Um, Jane was wondering, we, we talked about shooting in space. We talked about how you were underground 1600 feet. And I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the the locations because like shooting in in the in ethiopia in the desert and the drones are falling out of the sky and you're in this hostile it was almost like being on another planet absolutely there, right one of the scariest places that we shot was nearly two miles underground and that was extraordinary uh the crew had to go through this whole system of 
taking everything you took in, you had to take out even your poop. Everything, yes. Even poop. And they had to even cut the labels out of their clothes, out of their wetsuits and stuff, because you weren't allowed to take anything that might have fibers that might get left behind in, oh, this, wow. in this cave. And, and the cave was where, Jane? The cave was in Mexico. Yep. And one of the very, very experienced uh, camera team had, had to get out after two days. He just couldn't bear the silence down there. Really? We had to do a quick evacuation of him. Uh, so that was like a really extraordinary moment of that. that two miles underground is a really long way. And, and uh, I've worked in caves as well. I had a similar experience where half the crew panicked and we had to get them out. And then we continued to go down and we stayed overnight. And I, I found it incredibly difficult. I was only down there for, for a day and then a, the night and then we came out, but it really does affect you. And you start to process as you're drifting off to sleep, you start to process the idea that all that rock is above you. Yeah. So I, I, I can't, yeah. And These and guys stay for seven days. I, I just really cannot imagine that, yeah. That's, it's like so that was a and you're lugging all the gear and you're going through the tight spaces and you constantly just it's 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 glacial the movement yeah. through those caves and up and down and the ropes and yeah so. and this was even before those boys got trapped in the cave which anytime that anyone's doing that now they must be thinking of that even more so right especially with the the, the water yeah and that sort of thing um and then in the desert uh, in in africa danakil uh, yeah, yeah. Th that was explain to us danakil because it, it's it, it it really is like mars on earth it, it, it's just it's so the most hostile. it's the most toxic place and but it's it's not toxic because humans have made it toxic it's it's toxic because of gases bubbling up from beneath the, from the center of the earth. And it's, um, it's extraordinary that there is life there, yeah. but there is, but you have to wear these intensely protective suits and sleep in them too. You have to sleep with gas masks on because uh, the gases, it's basically that you see what you look like pools of water, but they're, they're pools of acid. And yeah, one of the hot, most hostile places in the world. And it must have just trashed your gear. I mean, Scott and I did a shoot in Nicaragua and we took, actually that camera's one of them, and we went down into a volcano and it just destroyed all, all, all the gear, the, the sulfur, uh, sulfur dioxide, and, which becomes sulfuric acid, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And it, so I heard you had drones falling out of the sky. We did, and the same with the volcano. We were, we were, a volcano unexpectedly erupted when we were filming it. And that, again, we had drones. That's not that, good. <laughs> drones that never came back. And we had drones that we, you know, suicide drones that we knew that would never come back. Uh, so we were, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of equipment wastage goes on on those kind of shoots. Any other locations that you can remember to talk about? I think they're the most extreme ones. Mm. I mean, I think in the next series, we're, we're starting to think about filming Some a lot under the, under the sea. Yeah. You know, we didn't go a really long way under the sea in the first series, and that's, there's a lot of stuff down there. Yeah, that perspective thing that you talked about where you're able to slow everything down, use phantom cameras, which can crank up to a thousand frames a second, yeah. and just look at the world in that different perspective. Is that sort of more where yeah, you're going to go digging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When do we expect to, to see that? be the end of next year. They take about nearly two years to make and then market. At the end of the, the interview, uh, Jane, I, I asked people a, a couple of questions. What I do is I ask people if you were gonna go on a road trip, and let's say you were going to go across America, 
and you could take anybody with you in the car from any time in history, living or dead, people maybe you have met or haven't met, who would you take in the in the car with you? And you can drive or let somebody else drive. It's totally up to you. Okay. I think I'd have to take, I have to make it a girl's road trip. Sorry, husband. But I, I think I think it would have to be a, a girl's trip. Okay, so you could take three with you, three girls. Three girls. You'd want to take someone who was sensible, but who would also, you want them all to be a lot of fun. Like Helen Mirren would be a lot of fun, wouldn't she? Helen Mirren would be great. Oh, yeah, she's let's got see. such a great personality. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just saying no, no, I just, love her. Just, <laughs> Have you had a chance to meet yes, her? Yes, yes, yes. She's fantastic. Helen Mirren would be great because she has a wild sense of humor. Yes. And she's also really badly behaved. Is she? Oh, yeah. She's kind of like, <laughs> she's like known. I like, ah. I like a bit of badly behaved. You know, okay. I like a little, she just doesn't care. And I think that on a road trip like that, you'd have to have someone who's like, what the hell? Yeah. Let's just, you Let know, hair down. let's just go for yeah. it. You know, you, yeah. you just, you, you, you got to have, you got to have some of that, really. You'd want to have um, a great woman from history. I don't know if um, people in the rest of the world know about her, but Bodicea was somebody, Bodicea was the queen of the Incii, who was the Roman, the tribe that stood up to the Romans. And every kid in British school learns about Bodicea. Okay. She had a right. chariot which had knives facing outwards from the wheels. Right. Sounds and, like Spartacus. Yeah. yeah. And she was the queen of the inside. So she was, the, she was the queen of a large part of Britain when the Romans invaded. And she held up the Romans for quite a long while on their invasion. You like strong, feisty women. I like strong, feisty women. Yep. You know, surprise. Why not? <laughs> You're a strong, feisty woman. So okay. I think I think I'd have to have the two. I'd have to have the two. I have a them. feeling she's going to be wanting to drive if she. You know, oh yeah, she's a, she's she, a, she's a, like she's a driver. Gotta yeah, be. Gotta be. And then we want someone. I think you'd have to be. I'd, I think you'd have to have. A great woman like you know, Julia Child or someone like that Julia who's going to do the or Janis Joplin maybe do the somewhere? cook do the food or the yeah. food well yes you, you have to have I didn't someone I think you'd have to have like someone who's going to do great you know just get down and do great food um, okay and then your final day on earth on this on one strange rock if you knew that you were going to be living your final day on earth and you could do whatever you want with that day what would you want to do with it I'd have to be by the beach, I'd have to be with my family, and I have some very lovely dogs, and I'd have to be with them. They like to swim, and I'd like to be on the beach. Jane, I really appreciate you taking your time. I know you're here in New Orleans, and you've got a lot of meetings, and the fact that you took a little time this to come up here and such talk fun. is just, I such really, fun. really appreciate it. And sometimes it's nice to meet the people who are behind the, the big ideas, because obviously you're not out there like Will Smith, but uh you know somebody's got to make these things happen and i am extremely excited to see what's going to happen with one strange rock too are you going to call it one strange rock too because that doesn't i'm no just, one's kind of just talk, talked we about haven't that talked yet. about it yet. yeah yeah we'll see a, a stranger rock one stranger I think rock. that might be the it. rock just got stranger i think str i don't know i think stranger is a good word stranger yeah thank you cool. so much thank really you appreciate it thank you thank you cool thank you I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Cogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us and follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an IT, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter at Phil Cogan. See you soon. <laughs>